up, everybody? Welcome to the latest, greatest edition of the Nesson After Hours podcast. I remember Salatius. Celia Godwin is here. We got ourselves a nice treat, a special edition of the Nesson After Hours podcast today. Do we not? Yes, yes, we do. We have three guests today. A lot focused on the Red Sox, but also it, we're in Black History Month. So we're celebrating and honoring all the Black athletes and just Black people who have made a big difference, not just, you know, in sports, but on the world and how Nesson is getting involved in that as well. Um, but I, I got to admit, Emerson, oh my gosh, I am exhausted and I have a coffee that I swear is a gallon and I don't know if it's going to be enough today. Whoa. It better be because hang on our first guest. If that coffee's not enough, he'll pump a little bit of energy inside you. Isn't that right? Good morning, Jemai Webster. Is it morning? Is it, I mean, do, how do we say? still morning, yes. Okay, yeah, yeah, good morning. <laughs> What's going on, you two? Uh, I'm tired, <laughs> but uh, let's let's go. I'm, I'm trying to bring some energy to the yeah, show. Yeah, here's the thing is I can't complain. Uh, I'm a single lady with a dog. Jamai has two beautiful little baby girls and that you, I can't complain about being tired because I don't even know what it's like to raise children. So I really can't complain here. It's, it's almost like a dog, but you gotta, you know, really, really keep an eye on them. Thank you, you know, Jamai. I was going to say, I have a six month so. old daughter, you know, <laughs> uh, Jamai, by the way, congrats, uh, on returning to Nesson, the nice new deal. Covering the socks full time. Oh yeah, signed a lifetime contract. You know, I'm uh, <laughs> looking forward to uh, finishing out my days at New England Sports Network. <laughs> oh, jam, jam. I'm excited to see you back on the uh, the sidelines there at, uh, at Fenway Park, man. Should be yeah, a should be, be. How different do you cool. expect it to be with the pandemic, though? Well, well, first off, let me let me say one thing. I I think I have the distinction of being the only person to ever grace the After Hours podcast who's been a guest twice and who's also hosted the show. So <laughs> I will say that, add that to my resume. But thank you. Uh, yeah, adding something else to my resume: full time Red Sox sideline reporter. So I'm super excited about that. Um, I think it's going to be extremely different, considering last year was 60 games, right? I didn't do one single game last year because. It just wasn't enough work, essentially, I suppose. Um, and now I'm stepping into this role where they're planning to play 162. We usually broadcast 150, 155 of those games. So it's going to be a lot of work, a lot of time. Um, and I'm glad that I had the experience of, you know, being 1A, so to speak, uh, behind Garen all those years since I got here, really, in 2016 and having the opportunity to do it on a small basis. So this season, I think it's going to be unique because we're still amidst the pandemic. It's crazy. You know, this whole thing hit, hit us in March 2020. And here we are going into almost a year later. And still, it feels like there's some progress, but really no end in sight, considering how the vaccinations are coming along and, and the rollout with that. So um, there still aren't going to be people in the seats. That's going to be a unique experience. It's going to feel like I have the ballpark to myself. I mean, not many people uh -oh. can say that. Poor you. Uh, it's going to be fantastic <laughs> to have that. But as far as the access, it's going to be very much like this. It's going to be virtual. It's going to be me, um, you know, trying to track down guys via text, phone calls, whatever, what have you, you know, seeing if they can hop on Zoom for a few seconds so I can get some insight and bring that to the broadcast. But um, I'm looking forward to it. It's certainly a challenge for everybody. And, you know, we got arguably the, the best team in the country 
um, when it comes to the folks on the TV side. So we'll see how we get down. Well, we are very, very excited to have you back. You are always super fun to be around. Um, you provide uh, incredible insights. Uh, I know that a lot of the players really enjoy being around you as well. So I, I know even though it's going to be difficult with how things are in the pandemic, I know that those guys will, will make sure to, to give you a little nugget here and there for the broadcast. Um, there's a lot of changes already happening in this offseason. Um, let's talk about the, that Andrew Benatendi trade here for a oh, second. Why was, why was right now the perfect time to trade him? Oh. Andrew Benintendi was part of no! my uh, work from home set during the years that, or the months that we were here. And now I got to find a new hat for this, or maybe I get somebody in the graphics department to hook me up with the KC one. But I mean, he's a great dude. Just, just, just um, on a personal level, I'm looking forward to him continuing his career. Had a tough year. He had like a buck Oh four last season left with yeah. a rib injury. This felt like, you know, a situation that Heim Bloom could not, pass up in my estimation because you know you think the 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 royals are buying low and you're selling there's they're selling high and buying low right this is a guy who was the number one prospect in the organization when he came into the league he burst on the scene and he's had like a steady decline over the last several years but you can attribute some of that to injury and then 2019 was like everybody's mulligan the red sox were horrible coming off a world series championship nobody really had a good year with the exception of Xander Bogarts and Rafael Devers. So I think he's still a, a, a major leaguer with potential to be a five-tool player, you know, hit for power, average, still steal bases, and, you know, get on base as well. It's just that I think um, Heim came in here and he started to, you know, make moves. The guy, I mean, he he traded Mookie Betts. So, I mean, he's not bro, afraid bro, of making bro. these type of moves. Jam. He made this move on the one-year anniversary of the Mookie Betts trade. The timing too. was he, a little bit. That. uh that's <clears throat> pain, painful. That's, that's yeah. what Hyam Bloom said. He used that word, painful. Yes, it was, and he tried to make you forget by sending off Andrew Benintendi a year later. So, um, <laughs> it didn't work. That, yeah, exactly. So you you got two superstars and, and one guy who was kind of growing into that role now, going to try to revitalize his career in Kansas City. But yeah, I mean, it, it was a surprise, but. Nothing surprises me with this regime, I guess. And, and to kind of bring it all together, really, I was thinking about this. In 2016, I got here in October. They lost to the Cleveland Indians in the um, divisional round, I believe. Next season, they lost to the Astros in 2017. And then 18, they won the World Series. 19, missed out on the playoffs uh, completely. And 20 was just a, a wild year, 60 games, and they were just subpar, right? But every year since then, there hasn't really been much consistency with the roster, with the coaching staff, with the exception of 17 and 18. So this team has yet to really have that ju that uh that that glue and those pieces that are consistent with winning. You look at all the franchises, the Dodgers, for example, nine years running division champions, and then have that consistent core. They got guys like Kershaw and these special pieces that they've had for several years to be able to compete year in and year out. The Red Sox have kind of been up and down. It's really been a rebuild since Poppy left after the 16 season. So they got lucky in 18 and they had the two years where they had a consistent roster. But ever since then, it's been so much up and down. And I feel like now that Haim is coming in here, he has an opportunity to put his pieces and lay the foundation for years to come. Well, they have added a couple World Series champions here. Reportedly, Marwin Gonzalez and then, you know, officially Kike Hernandez here. A couple of utility guys. The Boston Utility Sox are here. They have arrived, Jemai Webster. 
I guess yeah, this is I just mean, what I, they... I, I love Kike. I love the Kike signing. I've been following his career for several years, um, especially since he got out on the West Coast. So um, having an opportunity to watch him play postseason baseball, especially this season, um, the guy, I think he can do it all. And he said it in his introductory press conference. He's been this platoon player, this utility guy, as you mentioned, Emerson, for the last several years in the Dodgers because they got studs at every position. So just trying to find playing time is a difficult ask. So now that he's in a situation where he has the potential to play every day, I feel like he can reach another level. So I'm looking forward to him. Uh, Marlon Gonzalez is a proven player in the league as well. Um, he's played several years and, and, and been a pest for a lot of pitching staffs. I think he'll play good at Fenway Park. We'll see what happens when and if that does become official. Uh, Got to make some room on this 40-man roster, though, Jemai. So uh, we're not done making moves here, are we? Uh, I, I think they, they got a few more to go, you know. Um, they, they, you know, Justin Dustin Pedroia retired, so they were able to get Kike on the roster in his place. And right now they, they got a few – I was looking at it actually – just a moment ago, they got a few guys who, you know, might not be major league ready right now who they can uh, find some ways to plug and, and, and pick out. So I think there could be some potential more moves on the way. And one of the biggest ones, I think, which we were seeing reports recently is the return possibly of one Jackie Bradley Jr. Oh, so that but a lot of people want to know, is he coming back? It's being floated around right now. And, and from all the reports that I've read, uh, the reporting has been it only now makes sense, especially with them getting rid of Andrew Benintendi. So I think the two sides could find a, a deal that's amicable and, um, you know, it could be a, something like a two year deal even until, um, you know, maybe it's like a prove it type of situation where they can see where he goes from here and, and maybe come up with a long term deal after that. How much are we reading into the fact, though, on the Red Sox website, Franchi Cordero already has number 19 listed by his name. That was JBJ's number, Jemai. That hurts. Well, if you remember, when he first came up, he was number 25. He just changed it recently over the last several seasons because it's his favorite number. It's also his birthday, or Jackie Robinson's birthday. So um, I think numbers... They're interchangeable, but if he did come back, he could probably have a conversation with Franchi and uh, see if he yeah. can't get that one nine back. So yeah, we, it's we, not permanent. I mean, well, I don't know. We, we saw the sacrifice Chris Godwin made for Tom Brady in Tampa Bay. So that worked out Fran pretty well. Yeah, maybe exactly. Franchi will will do the same thing for JBJ if he decides to return. You know, it's the same thing. Uh, Jamai, what do you think about Hyam Bloom's long game strategy? Whereas some teams, you see them cashing in, they're going big. They want to be competing this year. They want to be a contender this year. The Dodgers, for example, are just throwing money at players right now. But the Red Sox, it's high and bloom is doing that long game approach. Uh, what, what do you think about that building up prospects that might not necessarily have proven themselves yet? Well, that's that's honestly, that's the foundation that all major league franchises that are successful are built upon. And the Dodgers have done that because, you know, they, 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 they sold out for a world series. They got one Red Sox did the exact same thing in 2018. When Dave Dombrowski was here, he decimated the minor league farm system to get back some fantastic pieces so they can contend. They were able to do that. 
it's just a cycle. Baseball is very cyclical. You kind of have to go through this. And coming in from the Tampa Bay Rays organization, obviously Haim has utilized some of those principles that maybe not are understood here in a Boston market because this is a, a franchise who has money at their disposal, right? So a lot of the fans are upset about, you know, the Franchi Corderos and feeling like you gave away Andrew Benintendi for almost nothing. But you look at his prospects, you read some of the stories on this guy. The Padres, when they had him, the fan bases out there, out West, were upset because they felt like he could be a, a, a great piece, a great asset because of his speed. He does strike out a lot. That's not, um, you know, something that that is unknown, but he also has other attributes and abilities, and maybe he gets some real quality coaching. What everybody says about Alex Cora and his ability to reach players, maybe it changes him. Maybe it changes him. Sometimes players need a, a, a scene change to to uh, find that success. So um, I think these pieces are not sexy by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> PK Hernandez was probably the biggest signing. And again, he's not at this point in his career not been an everyday player, but this is just the building block for, you know, the future right now. Yeah. And, and um, maybe these pieces can hit in 2021. 20, uh, you think about the Red Sox pitching staff probably being um, – the strength of this club right now. Wow. Um, and, and like last year, two years ago, that was not the case. Right. I mean, well, last year, definitely not the case. A lot of injuries, you know, you had Chris Hill go down with Tommy John, Eduardo Rodriguez, myocarditis and complications from COVID. But if all things are equal and these guys get back, you're looking at a top of the line rotation. This team can certainly compete. That's why I feel like 2020 was almost a throwaway year you know, because of the things that they were faced up against. Not only that, but the pandemic and it being 60 games. It's like, you know, I think they were 10 and 30 or, or 10 and 20 the halfway through the season. So it's like, you're out of it. That's it. You know, you got 30 games to go, but now facing a full season, seeing the ups and downs, anything can happen. That's the thing about baseball, really. Yeah. The teams mm -hmm. are so close together. And if somebody's having a good year, they can kind of carry the rest of the club. Well, I saw this tweet from Adam Pellerin last night and he made a good point. Red Sox offseason has a bit of a 2013 feeling to it. He's not suggesting the same end result, but a collection of veterans who have been around and in some cases helped their former teams make the playoffs, as we've seen with some of these recent additions, former World Series champions with their ex-teams. So, I don't know. Telling me there's a chance. <laughs> like, the, the expectations <laughs> I mean, there, there are, so, are so low. Like, as long as they put it, if they put a competitive team on the field this year, to me, that's a win. Because as you've already mentioned, last year was such a swing and miss. Definitely. And with these veteran pieces, with the pieces already in place, you get some guys back healthy who didn't necessarily um, have great years. Plus, you got, you got, you got probably the, the, the lone bright spot of 2020 uh probably a back-end rotational piece in Tanner Houck the incredible Houck had an amazing year incredible. Uh, for, for all intents and purposes the last month of the season where he was dominating teams that went on to be playoff teams he dominated the Braves to win were a game away from making it to the World Series so you feel good about that you feel good about some of the pitching that that that's in place you feel good about the Garrett Richards signing you know all these people who are are or freaks about the analytics and the spin rate and stuff. This guy, he's just off the charts. So we'll see what he can do if healthy as well. And I think the best thing or, or the best word I can come out of this is optimistic. I have a lot of optimism for the Red Sox this season. Will they be first place? 
that remains to be seen. You know, will they be able to compete with the Blue Jays who have also loaded up? Will they be able to compete with the mm. Yankees who have been there mm. year in and year out? That remains to be seen. But in the in the famed words of Denny Green, may he rest in peace. This is why you play the game. <laughs> All right. So spring season is coming up here next week. Um, so you'll be busy, obviously, with that. But uh, you've also been busy with a couple other things the last couple of months um, when it comes to planning for Black History Month. Um, I know you've done a lot of work on that for Nesson. Uh, you, you tracked the open for all these Black History Month vignettes we've done. You've done a couple of my stories. Um, what was that experience like for you this year? This last year, with everything that we've been through as a country and the conversations we've, we've had, has this Black History Month meant a little bit more to you? I'd, short answer, certainly yes. Definitely because of, you know, what 2020 brought us and the racial divide, really, and a lot of the inequities we've seen um, throughout this last year specifically and having the opportunity to be home and sit and watch this stuff unfold just as Americans in general. So I always take great pride in, in you know, spotlighting my culture, bringing it to the forefront and, and, and telling black stories. But this year, it feels like it's almost that much more of an emphasis on it, definitely with the network um, and also um, with our storytelling. So uh, we did for for my stories one of them was which would be the final one uh later this month in february uh, it's going to be pumpsy green story that's one we told previously but it's coming back again um pumpsy he, he passed away a couple seasons ago um so uh he's going to be the the season finale so to speak but uh we've got we we kicked off with Devin and jason mccordy uh two prominent players still in the market who's still playing at a high level um, in their 10th and 11th years in the league and still two, po two popular names, especially in Boston. So their story is a unique one coming from the projects, Section 8 housing in New York, in Nyack, New York, about 20, 30 miles outside of Manhattan, and then making it the way they did and, and facing so many challenges, you know, losing their father tragically uh, to a heart attack um, when they were just infants and toddlers, basically three years old and into to having athletics really pull them out of the hood. So uh, we, we had that one. We had Dana Barrows, who is, uh, you know, for me, it's like growing up in the West Coast, Dana Barrows was the one name probably in the NBA. And I felt like, you know, outside of my bubble at the time, which was just Lakers um, in the 90s and early 2000s, that I knew like this dude had game. So to sit down across from him and interview him was kind of wild. Um, and having met him over the, the last couple of years was also exciting. And to hear his stories, I mean, his is probably one of my favorites. Just okay. his story going up against Michael Jordan is probably one of the greatest stories that I've ever heard. And it had me at the edge of my seat during the interview. And I, we could have went an hour with Dana. I mean, he was fantastic. Um, so I'm looking forward to his my story continuously being played. It just debuted um, this past Tuesday. So, I mean, I implore everybody to check that one out because... He is a phenomenal story, too, growing up in the hood right here in Mattapan uh, in Boston and being able to, you know, his mom was in high school when she had him. Think about that. You know, his mother, mother was a high school teen pregnancy mom. And the same, you know, it's funny because the, the parallels that in my life, like my wife, she, her mom had her at 18. So I connected with that and understood it. 
because I know how difficult that can be hearing the stories. So his mom is super young and also has taken um, a, a big hand in some of the philanthropic uh, things that he's done later in his career, building up the Dana Barrows Basketball Academy in Stoughton. And now the place is, it's, it's even with the pandemic, it was, you know, it's, it's overrun with talent and people, they're going to find a bigger venue. So uh, hearing Dana's story from humble beginnings to being an all-star in the NBA and being such a small guy, like you think about NBA talent, right? Giants, guys, 6'6", six, six, uh, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James, 6'8", like Dana's like six feet and under, you know? So he's just a regular dude walking in unassuming, but he's world world-class athlete. Um, so hearing this story was phenomenal. And then we got the Jones brothers um, at Yale University and at Boston University. Um, two brothers, two African-Americans who are, are, are a minority leading um, their uh, Division I college basketball teams. Um, it, it's uh, the number's low. It slips me right now. But that one's the next one that we got coming up. And they also have a great story uh, that needs to be told and really hasn't really been told up until this point. So I'm excited for that one as well. Um, but yeah, we, we've done some amazing stories. We've done some good work this month. And I, and I hope we continue it, not just for Black History Month, because yeah. Black history is American history. And it's something that should be told all the time. Totally agree with that. Totally agree with yeah, that. Man. Um, Jam Jam, dude. It was good having you on. Thanks for dropping all the knowledge about uh, Red Sox for us and you know your passion for Black History Month and all the work that you've been doing at Nesson. We got a few other uh, guys on the horn right now who have been crucial in these projects as well. So Jam, I'll see you later. We, uh, we're going to miss you. Go take care yeah. of those beautiful babies. <laughs> I'll see you in a couple of days, but I'm sure. <laughs> all right, man. I'll Bye FaceTime you. you. All right. Take it easy, guys. Later, Thanks, dude. See ya. Uh, Marcus Omar, editor and writer at Nesson, Sean Allen, senior producer, crucial in these projects, these Black History Month projects at uh, Nesson. Guys, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us on. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, you guys uh, were very busy on this these projects. I can only assume it took you guys months. I, I think I heard from the grapevines that this has been in, in motion since, le what, last October? It was definitely last fall. How long have you guys been working on this? Um, I, I would say it was October. Would you, you think, would you agree, Marcus? I think we started maybe early to mid October and, and um, I have my list here of my original vignettes and I, and I, the first batch was, was due on November 16th. So I think we started in, in early October. Yeah. The, the, the conversations definitely started then. And, you know, it's funny uh, the way this all started, this started with conversations. I think it was six or seven of us, who sat down, uh, not in a room, in a virtual room, and just talked about what stories we we're going to tell and why we we're going to tell the stories. And I remember thinking at the time, oh, yeah, we have four months to knock these out, like plenty of time. And then it sounds like it's yeah, plenty yeah. of time. It's not. <laughs> yeah. Next thing you know, we're sitting, uh, we're sitting around in December and it's like, hey, these deadlines are they're here. So, um, yeah, it, uh, it, it started. It looked like we had five or six months or four or five months out. And then Black History Month was upon us. And now here we are. And then what was that process like, I guess, of reaching out to a lot of these like Hall of Famers, like these celebrities who are voicing all of these? Yeah, the process itself, um, it was, I've been, uh, for those of you who don't know me well uh, out in the 
universe. I've been at Nesson for around 10 years and this project was nothing like anything else we've ever done. Um, it was cross-departmental, got to work with people that I'd known only from uh, the water cooler or from the newsroom. And, uh, you know, just, it, it was really showing what Nessing can do when everybody sits down together from uh, every department. I'm in the digital department. Uh, we had Sean in production, we had producers, editors, uh, you know, video t television managers. And it just shows what this company is capable of when everybody has a hand in, in the mix. Yeah, I, I'd uh, seen Marcus around and talked to him for years, but never really had gotten a chance to get to know him well. I mean, Marcus, I hate, I hate to admit this, but I didn't even know you were from Boston. You know, oh, uh, yeah. I, 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 I kind of saw, I thought you were from Europe, to be honest with you, because- Because <laughs> he likes soccer so much? Because he's a soccer guy, yeah. I just, I just assumed, I didn't know, you know. Um, and, you know, we always, you know, had a, had a good time, you know, small talk and stuff, but it was really great to get to know Marcus and, and the process, you know, from all the way back in October was so much fun. I mean, we, you know, I mean, just, even just deciding which ones we were going to do and then and narrowing that we had a long list and narrowed that down and, you know, the whys and why nots of, of certain, you know, guys or, or events that we were touching on. So that process was so much fun. And like Marcus said, at that point, you know, it felt like, oh, this is this is kind of free and easy. You know, we're just having a great time here. And then all of a sudden, you get to December, and you're like, oh, whoa, we we need to <laughs> we need to really get in gear here. But but that process really was essential to narrowing it down and, and getting to you know just the perfect twenty eight or thirty because we didn't know you know how much trouble we were going to have finding material for these, finding pictures, you know, the, the inability to use video in a lot of cases. So so it was really it was a lot of work, but it, it was probably the most, and I've been here um, 14 years, it's probably one of the most satisfying, if not the most satisfying thing that I've worked on. So, so I'm really appreciative that I got to and, and got to work with the people that I did like Marcus. Yeah, if I could jump, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Celia, Marcus. If, if I could uh, just add to that, you know, one of the most, uh, it's funny, you talked about me being from Boston. When I first started, it was one of the, uh, it was like my laugh track, you know, it's like, hi, I'm Marcus, I'm from Boston. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm a, you know, born and raised in the city. And I think maybe one of my favorite parts about it was the fact that we could tell stories about, uh, I guess this is an audio podcast. You, you guys might not be able to know, but um, I am black. I'm a black American. And a lot of sports media does not reflect my community or communities where uh, of color. So this was a chance where we could talk we could tell stories about uh, certain certain people, certain uh, communities that are really undertold uh, in a lot of ways. Um, for instance, uh, one of the one of the vignettes that uh, probably the one I felt strongest about. And Sean, we I know you remember when we had a draft of which stories we were going to write. Uh, we had about thirty five topics, and three of us uh, who were writing stories, and we just went down went down the list. Uh, I think we did a snake draft and we picked which ones we were going to write. Uh, my first pick was Reggie Lewis. Uh, for Bostonians of a certain age, Reggie Lewis was probably, I wouldn't even say probably, Reggie Lewis was the athlete that young kids in Boston felt like we knew the most. Uh, he was our guy. Uh, when Reggie Lewis died, I cried. I've never cried so hard in my life. Uh, I cried that night. Uh, I cried in my dream. 
I woke up, I was still crying. Mm -hmm. That was in 1993. So here we are almost, uh, what, 30 years later, and I have a chance to tell the story about Reggie Lewis, Reggie Lewis's impact in Boston. So uh, that was my number one overall pick. Uh, but to be able to tell it, tell the story about his impact on the community. A lot of people don't know Reggie Lewis had the biggest funeral in the history of the city of Boston. And tens of thousands of people were lining the street from Matthews Arena to uh, his gravesite in Jamaica Plain. Um, I wasn't there, I was uh, out of the country at the time, but uh, I still have the, um, my aunt attended the funeral and I still have the program that she gave me. Wow. Um, so stories like that, uh, Patrick Ewing was another one I wrote. Patrick Ewing, probably the best, had the best career of anybody to come out of the Boston area. Um, so long story short, it was a way to tell stories that uh, we, you know, a lot of times we might have been missed that we might have missed. Um, and I didn't want them to be lost to history. I, I love hearing both of those stories, seriously. Um, and being from Boston and, and the ties that you have to those stories, it is wild that all of a sudden, decades later, it's now you yeah. helping tell those stories. <laughs> yeah. uh, Sean, for you personally, just the conversations we've had over the last year as white people, where we've had to just kind of check our check ourselves and our blind spots and, you know, oh, I didn't know that or I didn't realize that. Uh, did you learn anything in this process That's personally? That's a question and, and really did. I mean, it really, I, Marcus opened my eyes to a lot of things and you don't think of, you know, as a white guy and, you know, there were, you know, three, three of us, you know, white guys in the group and really would, would defer to Marcus with, with some questions that, you know, you think, you think you know the answer, but you're not quite sure, you know, I mean, there are little things, um, you know, for instance, you know, should we, is it okay to have, you know, white people voice these, you know, and, and you know, the three of us thought, well, you know, maybe it's not, is that, is that something, you know, that, that would be sensitive or, or not? And Marcus, Marcus jumped right in and said, of course we should, you know, this, this is all inclusive. It's about inclusion. So we should have people of all races voices and, and, um, and, you know, women as well. So it was, that was, you know, eye opening. And, you know, there are a lot of little things where, where, you know, I wasn't quite sure about something, but, you know, but I learned something and, and yeah, that's, that's a great point, man. I, I consider myself a very, you know, enlightened person, but, you know, there are certain things that, you know, that you can't yeah. know as, yeah. you know, as a white person, you know, so, so that was, that was really great. And Marcus was so understanding of, you know, in some cases our ignorance, you know, and, and, <laughs> really helped us fill in the gap. So that, that was, that was really great. It was a, it was a fun part of the process. And I'm, you know, I'm really grateful that we had that. It's a learning Marcus. experience. It's a learning experience and we're all here for it. And I really, I mean, and, and on Marcus's point about, about um, Reggie Lewis, like I was, I was a huge Reggie Lewis fan growing up as well. And, 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 but to see his passion for him, like we had a long conversation about Reggie Lewis and, and what he meant to Boston and, and, and how important, you know, he would be to, you know, being included and, in this group of vignettes and so that that was one of the memories for me that stands out the most is our conversation and and the passion that you just saw from marcus about reggie yeah. was, you know was was every bit as much you know during those conversations so that that was really great and my my first pick was was an easy one for me even though i i got some very interesting ones but um jim rice uh was you know one of my when i was a little kid you know was one of my my earliest you know biggest heroes and then 
I just, you know, I still kind of pinch myself that I, you know, get to work with him during Red Sox season on, you know, on a nightly basis and <laughs> be made fun of by him and, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> everything that, as you guys know, that, that goes along with being around Jim Rice, he's just, he's just a huge personality. But uh, it's because he loves you, Sean. That's why he makes fun of you. <laughs> he makes yeah, fun of Emerson. That's what I tell myself, you know, but we, you know, we've worked together for so long. It's kind of, I give it right back to him now, but there, there is a time where Jim has that look, you know, where, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like you, you might think you're joking around and everything's, you know, you know, fine and dandy. And then Jim gives you that look and you're like, okay, yes. <laughs> game time, <laughs> you know, uh, he makes fun of Emerson's golf swing all the time. <laughs> I think he just makes fun of me a lot all the time too, but it's because Jim and I have become best friends. That's why. Yes, I've noticed that. I've noticed that. He likes you. Very, very tight. He always invites me in and I'm allowed to have like one slice of his pizza. And he orders pizza and he has leftovers. I'm like, thank you. Thank you guys. Uh, guys, for... real quick, what do you want people to take away from all these work, all the work that you've done on, on these vignettes and telling black stories? What do you want people to take away from this? I, I just, I want people to, to learn things. I mean, there's so many things that I learned in, in this process um, about, you know, individuals, um, one of the ones, just real quick to mention, one of the ones that, that I was really passionate about was um, the Nashua Dodgers. Um, it, and I'm, I'm not from there, but I live in Nashua, New Hampshire now. And um, I kind of seen, and I went to high school in, in Nashua as well and played at Holman Stadium where the Nashua Dodgers played. And um, they were, it was um, Don Newcomb and Roy Campanella were two Dodgers the year before um, Jackie Robinson broke in. Jackie Robinson was in Montreal with their AAA team, but these two guys, were in Nashua with the Dodgers and they chose to play there because there were a lot of places, you know, around here that they were afraid to put a minor league team with, with black players on it because of, you know, of, you know, obvious reasons. And, um, they chose Nashua because they considered it, you know, kind of a progressive city. It had a large French population, which they, which, so they considered it a tolerant city because, because, um, the French people were, you know, weren't, you know, didn't experience a lot of racism when they were here. So long story short, just learning about, you know, what, what they meant, you know, coming behind Jackie Robinson and what they meant to this city. I had noticed murals around town, like around city hall, there are mur beautiful painted murals of them yeah. and there are plaques and, and things at Holman stadium. So I, I went, so in that vignette, you'll see pictures that I took on my iPhone of these murals and plaques at Holman stadium. And, you know, I spoke to some people at, at the national telegraph, the newspaper and got some pictures from them for it as well. So, but that was one that I just, I, I was really satisfying to, to put together and bring that story that I think a lot of people don't know. I mean, everybody's heard of Jackie Robinson, but, but these two great players were, you know, were equally successful with the Dodgers. Yeah. I think we ran that uh, last week. I was hosting the morning show like that day. What's wild to think like one of the whitest States in America ended up being like at the forefront of the civil rights movement. Right. The first, like the those. first integrated, the first integrated pro baseball team yep. in Nashville, New Hampshire. Marcus, uh, uh, anything you'd like to add as well? Yeah, for me, uh, two things really. One, you know, for me, the biggest, one of the points that I wanted to stress so much throughout this process was that this Black History Month, these vignettes weren't just they they couldn't just be about athletes playing well, black athletes playing well winning games for Boston sports teams um, and that it was so much bigger than that. It was, uh, you know, big, big credit to uh, Jim Rice and Mo Vaughn for winning MVP. And those were two of our vignettes, but we also had James Brown playing at uh, Boston garden, James Brown. Uh, I'm not sure if everyone knows 
I think it was the night after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Uh, every city, every major city in the United States was having some sort of unrest. A lot of them were going up in flames. James Brown was scheduled to play in Boston. Uh, there was a lot of fear that blacks in Boston would, uh, that there would be trouble here. James Brown agreed to televise his concert on PBS, allowing a lot of fans to stay home. And, you know, there were, he, he receives credit for saving Boston. There's actually a movie called The Night James Brown Saved Boston, where his concert uh, just allowed, uh, it, it really helped keep the peace in the city. Um, so there are stories like that, stories like Donna Summer singing the national anthem. Uh, Donna Summer is from Roxbury. Uh, she's, uh, she's a black Bostonian. She's one of our own. Uh, and she sang the uh, national anthem at the All-Star Game in uh, 1999, which is arguably the greatest All-Star Game ever. Uh, so that was the first point is that these stories span, they, they go so much further than what happens on the court. Uh, another one I wrote was Bill Russell sitting next to Muhammad Ali at his famous Cleveland summit in uh, 1967. Um, so that was my first point. And the second one was a larger part, Sean touched on it, and uh, Jemai actually said it beautifully, was that black history is American history. And it was crucial for me that it wasn't going to be uh, just black people. I was uh, myself and our former colleague, Larry Lawson, uh, who deserves a huge shout out for all his work in this. Um, you know, we were we were the only two black people that had our hands in uh, you know in the cookie dough making this. But it was important for me that it was a uh, that the process was diverse, and I think the outcome uh, what came out of that was really diverse. Where we had um, you know we have white people reading vignettes, we have uh, stories about women, um, stories that I never even heard of really. Uh, so it, it, it wasn't, it started maybe with the idea that we would run down sort of famous black athletes who did great things. And then it got so much bigger and I'm really so proud of uh, what it ultimately became. Yeah. Shout out to Larry Lawson. I'll, I'll double down on that one. And uh, also guys, it's Bill Russell's 87th birthday today. So Happy birthday to legend the to him. I, I saw he had this huge cake with 87 candles on it and he like, blew them all out and they like had a makeshift uh, fire extinguisher. I mean, he's always cracking <laughs> jokes, man. I swear that, that that man is hilarious and just a legend. Uh, very happy that he's still around and, and looking good. Yeah, you can do whatever you want when you have 11 rings. Gentlemen, it was awesome having you on. Yeah, Thank yeah you thanks so for much. having us. Yeah, I was just sitting here the whole time just in like trance by you guys because the stories that you were telling and sharing were just like so captivating i i was just in silence i, I looked down at emerson and we were both like kind of like wide mouth just just staring yeah at well it's been phenomenal it's been really great like yeah. running these at night and nesting after hours and then like when we're sticking around to host the morning show there's a whole nother one and i'm like sitting there and i am glued to the television yeah because i am i am learning like i am listening and just mad props to you guys and the entire team everyone who put their heads together for this because it is phenomenal i think what we are doing as a team at Nesson. Uh, this is extremely important. Absolutely. Yeah. Continuing that conversation and 
just trying to make this pl- this world a better place for everyone, uh, no matter your color, no matter your gender, your nationality, your religion, all that. Um, so thank you guys for yeah. all the hard work that you put in. It, they were all beautifully done, all the ones that I've seen, enjoyed them thoroughly and enjoyed this conversation today. So uh, Marcus, Sean, thank you guys so much. Thank um, you. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. All right. Every, we'll see you guys. And everyone can check out all of these uh, vignettes. Too, yeah, yeah. Let them know where to where to find them too. Nesson.com slash Black History Month. Nesson.com slash Black History Month. All of these incredible stories you've been hearing Sean and Marcus share with you and Jemai. You can watch them right now. It's yep. gold. Great stuff, guys. Uh, awesome conversations. Looking forward to the weekend. Looking forward to, uh, we got a double header tonight. Uh, a lot more sports. Football might be done, but we're just now getting into the, the, the nitty gritty of NHL, NBA. It's all coming your way, and we will see you guys next week. Have a wonderful weekend, New England. 